We're starting the show, though, with something different that has been contentious and in many places, including Vancouver and in Surrey. And we're starting in Surrey talking once again about the bylaw, the charge for bags in Surrey. That's for paper bags. We got an email from a viewer to Global News, a listener to CKNW. And in this email, I'll just share part of it. It says McDonald's is incorrectly applying the new plastic bags and single-use items bylaw and both McDonald's and the city of Surrey know about it and it has not been corrected. Uh, This person goes on to say, I went through the local McDonald's in Fleetwood, that's at 156th Street and Fraser Highway, for the first time since the bylaw was implemented. I ordered a treat for my son and I was asked if I wanted a bag for 25 cents for two little donuts. I answered yes. I was handed the shake and in the and the two little donuts were in a small McCafe bag. The size of the bag was about seven inches by four inches. It didn't seem right that I was charged for the McCafe bag, which is basically the food packaging, much like a Big Mac container. I went home and checked the bylaw and sure enough, small bags for bulk foods are exempt. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor. Councillor Locke, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, We spoke to you about this uh, not too, too long ago when the bylaw came in for the use of paper bags. What are your thoughts on what this person, this resident of Surrey, says happened at that McDonald's? She's absolutely right. Um, That that small size bag is, is exempt, and so McDonald's is absolutely wrong. They should not have charged uh, for that bag. Um, this has been a classic uh, case of unexpected consequences. Good intentions. Province put out the legislation. Surrey was an early adopter of the legislation. and uh, But, you know, it's always getting the bugs out, and this is one of them. Because you had called earlier on for fast food restaurants, specifically cafes, restaurants, to be exempt because it just didn't make a lot of sense that people wouldn't have their food put in a bag. I mean, that that's also talking about when you're you're getting maybe a few meals or, or a collection of food. This is a bag that two small donuts were put in. What happened when you put the call out or suggested that that was a bit of a flaw in the legislation and that to restaurants, quick service restaurants, shouldn't be included. Right. So, I mean, clearly there is not a viable alternative for the public or for restaurants. They cannot take um, used or reusable bags that people hand to them into a into a kitchen environment, and you know it just wouldn't work. It's just as clumsy as can be. So, um, I put forward a motion that we we just pause this. It, as I said, the case of unexpected consequences, we were an early adopter. Let's just pause it for a minute and see how we can roll this out. Because in Surrey, you have the bylaw. In Langley and Delta, you don't. It's just completely confusing to the public. Um, but my council colleagues uh, decided um, to uh, that at least the majority on council uh, decided that they wanted to stick with the bylaw. Uh, one of them Councillor Patton suggested that people should take the 25 cents and go buy, I guess, carrots for their kids. But, you know, I mean, the real world is the real world. People need to go to uh, restaurants all the time, and, and that just made no sense whatsoever.
Global News reached out to McDonald's to get clarification on this and in a statement to uh, Global said it says in accordance with the guidance from the city of Surrey all businesses including restaurants are required to charge a minimum fee of 25 cents for each paper checkout bag distributed. In this case the bylaw was applied to the McCafe bakery bag which restaurants can but are not required to charge for. Do, Do you think is that the proper way to read the legislation or to read this bylaw? Uh, I don't think so. I've read the bylaw a couple of times. It's very clear in there that small bags are exempt. Um, McDonald's could have reached out to me, actually, if they want to, and I I can uh, help them through some of that. I also know that Surrey is not, although the bylaw is in place, I really highly doubt they're going to see bylaw officers coming in to enforce it. Um, So it it's kind of in that it's in that um, uncomfortable area right now until we really get some clarification around it. How does this help at all? Do you think if if a big company like McDonald's or or even a smaller company, a place that has bakery bags or bags that are considered really part of the packaging, if they're choosing to interpret this bylaw, choosing to interpret this as they can. Uh, charge for this if they want. How does that help the environment? Yeah, it doesn't help it at all. And and, and it it it's about the real world. We all we all live in the real world. So let's just do what what makes sense and what's feasible. We've already got these bags. There isn't a a good program for the twenty five cents. Or is there a proof, or is there an audit process to figure out how we're going to be manage managing that money in an environmental way? So there's so many questions to it. I think um, I think it's really time that everybody just tried to, you know, as crazy as it sounds, use a little bit of common sense once in a while. But um, it was good intentions. There's no doubt. I support I support the overall of the bylaw. But I absolutely get this is cumbersome for the for the restaurant industry, and we have to come up with an easier way for them to get their product to their consumer. And uh, we don't have that right now. We don't have a viable alternative. And one other question that's been raised as well, and this came as, in as an issue in Vancouver also with Vancouver uh, going along or going ahead with its cup fee, uh, that uh, it quickly became apparent that people who had coupon or had vouchers, who had, say, gift cards or, or were lower income, didn't have the money to be paying this 25 cents. And it was something that, uh, again, an unintended consequence. That's come into question even with this fee as well, that if you're somebody mm-hmm. on a lower income, on a disability benefit, and you're eating at McDonald's or you're eating at a fast food restaurant, you don't have the money to be paying 25 cents for every bakery bag or every bag that might be included in your meal. It it just hits you like another um, tax. And I can tell you, just in talking to people in the public right now, everybody is struggling. They are struggling because of the price of food, because of all the implications. I mean, of course, we're all talking about gasoline these days, but there is so many uh, pressure points for the taxpayer right now. This is so unnecessary, and it is, um, it's, it's unfortunate that we 
we complicate our lives all the time with these what what I think at this point is uh, a silly imposition on on uh, the consumer. So is there anything Surrey, the city of Surrey can do about this if there was the will to do that? Or is it basically leaving it up to restaurants and retailers like this to interpret the bylaw, how they interpret it? it? Well, I think it is up to them to interpret the bylaw. I, I would tell you in my mind, McDonald's, incorrect in how they're interpreting the bylaw. But um, uh, the other side of it is Surrey Council, um, exclusive of myself and and a couple of others on council, um, do not... uh, Surrey Council supported this bylaw. They support imposing this awkward policy on the residents of Surrey. And I am unclear why, but... uh, I'm unclear about a lot of things that are happening in Surrey these days, so uh, this is just another one. I I don't have any great explanation. I'd be happy to talk to uh, the the person that sent the email to you, and I will also reach out to McDonald's myself because they they are interpreting it incorrectly. All right. Councillor Locke, thanks so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, lots of updates today from the Provincial Health News Conference. We know that the mask mandate is going to be ending as of midnight, 12.01 Friday. Masks will no longer be required in public indoor spaces in British Columbia. And the vaccine card, that certificate that is required for some businesses going to places like restaurants and events, that will remain until April 8th in BC. Then it will be lifted. It will not be a requirement. Masking in schools will no longer be required after the March break and faith gatherings returning to 100% capacity once again. That's also happening at midnight tonight. Well, let's check in now with a business owner to get reaction to this. Owen Coomer is the operations manager at Tap House Coquitlam. Owen, thanks so much for coming back on the show with us. Always a pleasure being here. Uh, what are your thoughts? Will it, will it seem much different tomorrow when patrons could potentially be coming into the Tap House and not wearing a mask? You know what? I I believe there definitely will be an influx of business. Uh, I mean, it's already was very impactful when uh, we were able to open up with mingling and dancing and full capacity. But I think that there is a gratitude of, uh, I don't know, this this easing that people are going to want to come out and see a server smile and see people smiling. (laughs) I think there's just kind of like that uproar of it's been finally two years in the making and uh, I think it's time. And even though we got a glimpse of it back in July, I think people are kind of seeing the writing on the wall that I think we're through the pandemic. So uh, life is returning to somewhat normality. Have you talked to your staff at all as far as comfort levels with going from fully masked up to now not having to mask? Uh, I, I actually have had that conversation earlier today. Um, we uh, are going to have uh, a discussion later today. I mean, I already talked to my owner as well. And, you know, we have tried to be corporately responsible throughout this pandemic and try to always be ahead of the curve of thinking about the patron and the staff and the sa- health and safety of everybody, you know. And it's uh, we were one of the few companies that actually still required masks for our, our, our you know, back of house and front of house staff, even when they lifted the, the restrictions in July. And obviously it ended up that we had to put them back on. This one, um, I think that it, it may be time that we pull back and actually remove the masks. Although I think what we're discussing is whether if a guest asks, 
you know, whether this server could actually wear one or so on. We're, we're going to be trying to figure out how, what's the best solutions for us going forward. But uh, honestly, um, the, our nighttime crowd has, I think, gotten used to the, the, the sort of that uh, not having to wear a mask, you know, places, that, you know, going downtown and things like that. Nightclubs, I've heard, you know, we've heard it through liquor inspectors that most people have kind of just dropped in. Um, whereas I think our, our older demographic uh, and our people that are coming in for lunch and maybe just, a, you know, an early happy hour during the week, would, they might feel a little uneasy because they're not used to that. The fact that the last two weeks there's been a little bit more of an openness with the masks. So we are going to try to play around with it. It is very possible that maybe during the day we wear a mask and then at night we don't or whatever. But as far as I'm aware right now, I think we might end up finally uh, removing the masks and having maybe a mask burning party or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the one event of the year or something, you know? Yeah, you might not be the only ones doing that. <laughs> and, and you touched on something, though, there that uh, Dr. Henry said. It really is people moving forward with their own comfort level and, and gauging what level of risk they're they're feeling okay with. What about uh, the, the vaccine certificate? The plan uh, right now is that it will be lifted uh, this at uh, April 8th. So as of April 9th, there won't be any of checking vaccine certificates to come into restaurants. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I mean, for us, um, we were always scanning uh, up until basically the last um, uh, update where mingling and, and that openness, because I mean, our venues hold, uh, you know, over 500 people in Surrey and, and uh, you know, 450 in, in Coquitlam. So especially late night, we were checking, you know, obviously do driver's license in the second piece and the vaccine passport, because we're just trying to increase speed. And we're, we're, we're at that point where obviously, you know, we've been two years, we've been uh, holding back uh, with multiple different restrictions and things like that, that obviously this is the time to make money. People are excited. People are passionate. People are wanting to, to go out and have a good time. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, you know, uh, the passport being gone in, in April, uh, I think it's going to be, um, good for business. I mean, I think a lot of people have been used to just showing it, so it hasn't really been that big of a deal. But again, even just to look at it or scan it or whatever, you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds a person. And when you kind of see across the country and throughout the world, if people are dropping it, it's like, what are we doing? Like, why are we holding on to this piece of technology? So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned as a business, I think this is going to be very proactive and it's going to be really exciting for people. And um, by all means, uh, I know that they've talked about certain places are are probably still going to require masks, you know, because of their business, their decision and the passports. And um, for all intents and purposes, I mean, good on them. I mean, if that's what they want or how they want to conduct their business. But us, I mean, we look at it as is that, like the old good times rolling, we're, we're back to normal. So, and I mean, I feel like, especially being on the show for the last two years with you, we've gone through all of the challenges. So it's like the, the light is at the end of the tunnel. So we're excited about getting there. Uh, do you think there'll be a certain clientele as well? I know there, there are people who, who aren't vaccinated, so obviously didn't get the vaccine certificate and have not been going to restaurants. But I do hear from people on this show as well who say, I'm fully vaccinated, but I am so opposed to having to show my vaccination record to go eat at a restaurant i haven't gone and i'm not going until it's dropped do you think that is that a substantial number of people well um i I have heard that i'm not sure how significantly it is because to me i mean if you've gone to get your two shots and all you're having to do is just show the vaccine passport it's just kind of like a driver's license when you were like you know i mean even the liquor store where anybody under the age of 30 still has to get id'd i mean 
I think maybe just the challenge is that nobody likes to get IDs. <laughs> you know, so, so with a vaccine passport, it's like, yes, it's kind of a, a nuisance uh, for people. But honestly, I haven't really uh, come across that. I, I think most people have been very happy with uh, the program. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a select few that never enjoyed it from the get-go and so on. And, and to me, I think that that's what this uh, is about, is personal choice, you know, and, and business ethics and so on and so forth. And to each their own, you know, uh, I, I'm just happy that, you know, we've been able to get through this uh, all together and, you know, we're exciting, you know, excited about the future. So, um, I, yeah, I don't, I haven't heard much of that, but I mean, still, they were saying about 93% of the population in BC has been vaccinated. And if even 7%, I mean, of whatever, 6 million to 8 million people we have in BC, I mean, there's still quite a lot of people that were unvaccinated and um, a lot of them live in Metro Vancouver. So still a significant number, but yeah. Uh, and how are staffing levels? Uh, how are staffing levels going? I know we've also talked to you uh, in the past, uh, you and, and many other restaurants uh, feeling a bit of the pinch when, when everybody was seemed to be scrambling for staff. Mm-hmm. Well, we are struggling. <laughs> they, uh, I was just on um, the AGM for the Board of, uh, or, or for the ABLE today, um, and they were discussing that uh, they were already in a shortage even before the pandemic. They were talking about 2025 being something like 120,000 uh, you know, jobs that, you know, required filling, but we don't have anybody. And right now it's uh, sitting at a huge number. We're definitely, we're, we're struggling to find people. Um, it's definitely a slow process. Um, I think that if it was me way back when, uh, I know the government always had good intentions, but when they announced, hey, everybody, you know, 36 hours, we're going to be up at full capacity, and you have that dancing and that mingling, uh, venues like ourselves that have a lot of, uh, of people that we can get in here, uh, I think it's been it's been hard to kind of go, oh, zero to 100. Now we, all of a sudden we need to have door staff, and we need to have more servers, we need to have more hosts on, bartenders, people that haven't worked for the last two years or have just tried to make do. So I feel for everybody. Um, I can honestly tell you that, uh, you know, if you happen to want to come to a great place to work, please submit your resume. We're badly struggling, but uh, I know everybody's in the same boat. But uh, I think that over time now that, you know, people are like we're getting back to that normality. I think but the money's starting to roll in again. And I think that uh, people are going to realize that, you know what, having a serving or a bartending job in this environment, especially nightclubs and stuff like that, I think that there's a lot of money to be made because people want to go out. They've been itching to go out. And there's a lot of people that haven't been able to experience this. So there's definitely money to be made. And, you know, even minimum wage is going up in June. So it's win-win for everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, Owen, I can uh, hear the uh, your voice is a bit lighter today because because of this. So thank you so much no for joining worries. us uh, to talk about the lifting of the restrictions and all the best. We'll talk to you again yeah. soon. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on the show. We are talking about the lifting of some of the restrictions that was announced earlier today. The mask mandate being lifted as of mid, uh, midnight tonight, and it's going to be about another month, April 8th, until the vaccine certificate is lifted. Also got some updates as well about schools. So masks will no longer be required in schools following the March break. Faith gatherings back to 100% capacity as well. Changing from businesses in this province having 
comparing COVID-19 safety plans to having communicable disease plans. That's going to start on April 6th. And long-term care visitation, that is going to be expanded to allow for more visitors. Screening will still be in place. There will still be the vaccine card used there for the time being as well. And masks still being used in settings like that. But a lot of changes, a lot of lifting of the restrictions today. So joining me to talk more about that is Caroline Colain, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Uh, What are your thoughts on what was announced today? Yeah, so I mean, I can speak from a point of view of, you know, modeling the COVID numbers in the in the population of BC. And what we're seeing in the modeling is that we're actually very resilient to changes like this, that of course, we do get protection from wearing masks, and so not wearing them may cause more infections to happen. Uh, but we've just been through a huge peak. There's a lot of immunity from vaccination, from boosters, and from past infection recently. So we're in a really good position that that's really unlikely to drive a, a large surge in new infections and new cases. And given the numbers as well of people that have been vaccinated and not as many boosted, I think the number on the slide that Dr. Henry had today was about 56% that had received a booster shot. But given those numbers as well, does that also place us in a pretty good position as far as it's not likely, at least for the first two doses, it's not likely that number is going to rise much more. Does that put us in a good position as well in fighting this? Yeah, I think boosters really do. Boosters uh, give you those antibodies and protect against infection. And all the vaccinations, two-dose and the boosters, protect against severe disease if you do get COVID, which is not to say nobody will have severe disease, but it will be at manageable levels. And that does, as you say, that 56% boosted provides uh, a lot of that. And I think we should remember some people who had COVID then didn't get a booster yet because they just had COVID. It's after their two doses and the National Committee on Immunization says a three-month delay is good. So there may be some people who will get that booster later who already have a, a very strong level of protection from two doses followed by, you know, unfortunately having had Omicron. So I think all of those things um, paint a picture that, at least in modeling, we, we really think we're going to be quite resilient. There will be some increases and it might um, lead to higher levels of COVID than we would have seen if we kept restrictions in place. But on the other hand, we're not going to keep mandated um, things like masks in place forever. And that's probably part of, of the rationale here. Not that people shouldn't wear them, but that we don't necessarily need to mandate that people wear them. And when we look at those as well and looking at the modeling numbers, then do you think what will we see, especially when schools come back and the, the mask mandate lifted at schools following March break, should we be prepared for, for in that type of setting as well for more transmission? But again, if we're dealing with people who are vaccinated, we're not going to see hospitalizations or severe illness as much? Yeah, I think that's basically right. I think that's what I'd expect. Um, Vaccination rates have been lower in the 5 to 11 age group, and I hope that people are still vaccinating if they haven't had the first or second dose yet, because recent two-dose vaccination will be protective against Omicron infection and will help uh, add to that protection. A lot of uh, kids already had COVID. There was a slide uh, in one of the reports from BCCDC that had 30%, I think, in zero to four so again, while that's, you know, that's not ideal, but it does, you know, the silver lining there is there probably is some protection in that group already from having having had the Omicron wave together with those vaccinations. 
But, you know, that said, if we remove a protection that is working, and I think masks are working, we will see some infections happen as a result of dropping that. And we may not see it very strongly. It may be a, a weak effect, and it may be that many uh, people still choose to wear a mask. And so, of course, um, that protection will still be in place in that case. And when we're looking as well, uh, Dr. Henry mentioned wastewater and that the wastewater readings were showing a decline in infection as well. How accurate is that or or how much when you're looking at modeling numbers, how much do you take that information or or use that information when when trying to figure out the path that we're on? Yeah, we have looked at that a little bit. It's not something I've done a a deep dive into. I've, I've done a shallow dive. And I found, yeah, I, I would agree with that from what I saw when I looked at it. That it is showing a decline. It is pretty noisy. There's just a lot of factors that go into the wastewater signal and sort of trying to pull out infections from that. I think it you know, would be better if we wanted to know the number of infections to, to test a, a small but random sample of the population with rapid test and PCR and just ask, like, what's the infection? What's the infection rate? Um, but, but for sure, we can use those um, those signals and they also you know, seem to be declining. They're pretty noisy, but um, but it's definitely a source of information. Right. Okay. Uh, so a few people have been questioning the logic behind lifting the mask mandate as of midnight tonight, but keeping the vaccine certificate in for another four weeks. Do you think that will have an impact as far as uh, Dr. Henry did kind of address this saying that, that it was a good idea to keep that mandate for places where perhaps people haven't been wearing masks 100% or there is more mingling and people very close together that it would be better if those groups are fully vaccinated. Is that kind of the, the, the thinking behind that, do you think? I don't know what uh, the thinking is behind it. Um, I, I think there's a there's a logic to that. There's, you know, I think one thing that the mask, uh, the vaccine system or the vaccine card system really did before Omicron was really prevent transmission because vaccines were really preventing transmission of Delta. Omicron really changed that. So it changes the impact of the vaccine mandates, but doesn't change the impact to zero still by reducing the risk in people who are not vaccinated. That reduces their chance of you know, going to that potentially higher risk setting where maybe there are no masks worn because it's a restaurant, whatever. Um, and that protects them and that protects them from getting severe disease, which then protects the healthcare system. So there is still a, a rationale. And, and as you say, if, if that's what uh, what Dr. Henry mentioned, then that's probably where their thinking is on it. What does this tell us, do you think, if looking at the projections and the numbers and again, bracing for with this change, there there could be more infections, there will likely be more infections, not hopefully not more hospitalizations. Uh, but and again, Dr. Henry saying this is something we're going to have to live with this virus for the, the foreseeable future for, for likely years to come. Does it show, though, that we're on a path where maybe we see this increase after we lift these restrictions and then we continue on getting to a better place with this virus? I hope so. I I think, you know, we may see some increase. We may see that, you know, under whatever we decide to do in the long term, whether that's many continuing to wear masks or whether that's, you know, ventilation or having moving some of our gatherings outdoors or whatever it is for COVID, we will have some amount of COVID. And so there will be some portion of the population that has COVID at any given time, and maybe that's 1% or half a percent or 2%, uh, we, we will need to manage that. And part of that is um, managing risk. Part of that is managing outbreaks or transmission in workplaces. Part of it is watching the virus, see what it's doing, continuing, looking for evolution of new variants. 
and trying to become resilient to new variants that that might happen and monitor when they're they're a risk to BC. So I think we're looking to those things in the in the coming months. Uh, does testing still play an important role? I mean, I, you know, as a as a user of data, as a as a modeler, I like testing. I think it does play a role, and I think we will need to know how much COVID is in our population in order to know how well our vaccines are working, protecting against infection and against severe disease. And we'll need to know in terms of anticipating risk to workplaces and sectors from people being absent from work, even if they don't have a severe case that lands them in hospital and cause the kind of crisis we've had in the past two years, that may still have an impact on workplaces and on families and on people needing time off. So I think we do need to do testing to see how much virus is out there and what the virus is that's out there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone who has symptoms consistent with COVID must have a PCR test for COVID. We could do that with a representative sample of the population or by integrating it with the way we watch out for flu and other respiratory infections. But I do think there's a role for testing. People also, as individuals, might want to know if they have COVID in order to protect their loved ones, in order to, um, you know, we'll need to know the risks for long COVID, too. So people might want to know that. So I think there is a role for testing in the general population. Uh, you mentioned there long COVID. Are we getting a sense? Do we know the numbers when it comes to what percentage of people who are infected deal with some form of long COVID? I think it's really hard to know right now. I think we're getting better data from infections before the Omicron wave. Um, but I think Omicron could change it because it's quite a different virus. And because a lot of the infections with Omicron have been in people who've been fully vaccinated. And so we'll have to look at the impact of vaccination might have on protecting people from long COVID in the same way it has an impact protecting people from hospitalization. But it hasn't been very long since a lot of us had Omicron after having been fully vaccinated. So I think uh, in my mind, the jury's still out, but we are learning every week, you know, more data about some of the possible impacts that COVID can have. So I think it is important to keep monitoring that and to really go into this next phase of the pandemic with our eyes open and with the right public conversations happening about what we're, or what we want to do in terms of COVID. All right, Caroline Colain, thank you so much for joining us today and talking more about these numbers. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. A busy news day, but we wanted to take a few moments to talk about this story out of Nanaimo. And I guarantee it will make you shake your head and wonder how are there people who can do such a thing. Joining us to talk about this scam is Constable Gary O'Brien, Media Relations Officer with the Nanaimo RCMP. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. It's just such a heartbreaking story. Anytime you see somebody scammed and then it, I think, makes it even worse when you see somebody preying on an elderly couple. Can you walk us through exactly what happened here? Yes, this is a really troubling one. This is probably the worst one I've seen in Nanaimo in my time here. It all started in early 21 when they got a cold call from a person who purported to be working for Reader's Digest he said, guess what? You've won the lotto, which comes $18.5 million, and they were ecstatic. And also, they were receiving a brand-new Mercedes-Benz. And uh, so about two days later, they received in the mail a, a very official, well, they believed to be an official-looking document from the Journal Revenue Service, stating, well, with the winnings comes administrative fees. And that's always the catch. So over the next year, they took out dozens of bank drafts from a local chartered bank, and it totaled almost $400,000. We weren't even aware of this. 
we were actually doing a parallel investigation, which led us to their home. And we went in and we identified ourselves. And only then did we realize that they were being scammed and they didn't realize it either. And the sad thing is at the end of the day, we had almost four investigators. And they're very senior and they've dealt with a lot of files. The people, they still didn't believe us. That's the sad part. So wait, so it was something, was it something completely unrelated that took you to the house and while officers were there, they they happened to find out this was happening? Yeah, I can't talk to the other file. It's before the courts. Sure. We just say there was a a criminal investigation which led us to that home and we made the discovery that they were being victimized. (laughs) And so this started early 2021, like you said, when they got this phone call and was there no family around or, or anybody, I guess, to, that they may have talked to that their spidey senses would have gone off, especially like you said, when they, when they said they had to pay these administrati- administrative fees? You would think, but in this particular case, there wasn't. And, and that's the sad part. We find people, when they get to advanced age, they're relatively isolated. They spend more time on their own and they're not sharing information. We, we know statistically that only about 5% of all the frauds are ever reported. And the number one reason is that they're absolutely embarrassed. And I'm not saying this was the case, but it certainly may have been a predicator as to why they didn't share it with family and friends. Right, because you would think, too, when looking at this, and, and again, nobody people don't know all the... the all that goes into the scenario, all of the factors, but to get to the point where you've you've handed over almost four hundred thousand dollars to somebody, even if you think it's a legit organization, and you've seen nothing of an eighteen million dollar lottery that you've been told you won, you would like to think that some alarm bells would go off. You would think. Um, I've been in this job for a while, and I've talked to a lot of people with bankers, and we've gone to actual homes and tried to convince them. There's one older gentleman that I spent most of the morning with, and he wasn't convinced because he had actually received prizes. And those prizes were paper clips and paper towels and just just rubbish you could buy at the dollar store. So he was convinced he was going to win. These people were convinced they're going to win. And it's very hard to change that mindset. Is there any chance in these cases or in this particular case of tracking down or finding whoever it is that was scamming these people? Well, the more complicated files are, there's more of a paper trail, and that's the good thing. So we've got senior investigators on this, and they will follow the paper, and hopefully it'll lead to some charges. We've got a great cooperative relationship with our police officers south of the border, so we're all on the same page, and we'll see what we can do. The number one thing that we we tell people, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up, is you you have to slow down. You've worked all your life for your money and somebody's after it and they're offering you this, if it's too good to be true, it absolutely is too good to be true. And the other one is with these lotto scams, you've got to have a ticket. Like, I don't know whether they purchased a fraudulent ticket south of the board. I don't know. But the question is, you've got to have a ticket to win. Well, I was going to ask that if, if this was a random call that they just happened upon, that, that the scammers happened upon people that uh, that were sucked into this, or is it more developed in the, than that, in that they knew maybe that this couple had a Reader's Digest subscription or that they had purchased some kind of sweepstakes ticket? It's a great question. I, I don't have the answer for that one. We do advise people, though, the Canadian Nanny Fraud Centre is a fantastic resource for people. 
they'd c- keep up to date from A to Z every fraud being carried out across Canada. It's a government agency, and we're providing information. They rely on people, sadly victims, to share their stories so they can pass that information on to other people. And that's the one thing when I say they're a good resource. If you're, you've got that, that hit on and, and the fraudsters are after you, slow down, use your Google, check out the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, and any fraud being carried out will be in there. Uh, and in this case, too, and you mentioned this, so the couple, again, this is an elderly couple, a couple in their 80s, they were called weekly, they were told to make the payments for the taxes owing, uh, payments using cash through money orders. I know in other cases, uh, we've heard of people uh, being told to get prepaid visa cards in Bitcoin, which is also a red flag. But in this case, so they were making these payments uh, through through cash and money orders. Is it possible then, ca- obviously not with cash, but to whoever they were making the money order out to, is that something that, that police will be able to investigate? Oh, absolutely. As we said, the more complicated these files are, the more paper there is. So we will be following that. And some of the people I've spoken to today, they said, well, why didn't the bank inform them? So the reality is a lot of people during COVID the last two, two and a half years have been taking money withdrawals. And this did not flag anything in the local bank. And it wasn't uncommon for people to be making these withdrawals. So that's why the bank didn't step in. Even even when they got to the point where they'd gone through almost $400,000. Sadly, yeah, that's true. Uh, You mentioned south of the border. So, So do you know where the scam originated? Well, we have information on the file as to whether or not that is correct or not. It probably isn't. But it's the money or the money drafts that we'll be following. And they, they will certainly be drops at various locations, and there'll be generic ones they've used before. And by talking to our partners south of the border, they'll certainly have some, some local information to assist us on our investigation. And I would imagine that that money that they've taken out, the almost $400,000, that money is gone in that we don't often, or I can't recall a a story like this where we've seen the money recovered. Yes, we're not holding out hope that they'll get their money back. All right. What do you say that, do you, you, are you concerned at all that there could be other potential victims either in Nanaimo or elsewhere? Only 5% of the people who are ever frauded report their information. There's a lot of victims out there. And maybe not from this one, but from other frauds. We need to hear from them. Uh, it's embarrassing. We know it. But when you we talk to us, it's confidential. And um, if you're reporting it, you can help other people so they don't fall prey to it as well. Right. And and I hope, too, that this couple doesn't feel like people are judging or people are, are blaming them for, for falling for this. Because like you said, if it only it, it works when people report this and come forward and, and people hopefully can get past or don't feel embarrassed because so many it's they're certainly not alone if they're the ones that have fallen for it. I've been giving fraud presentations across Nanaimo for years. And I've talked to thousands of people. And the first thing that people say is, I'm not a stupid man, I'm not a stupid woman, but I lost X amount of dollars. It can happen to anybody. These people have very complicated frauds, and they have time to do it. They're probably sitting in jail talking to other criminals and developing it. It happens. We can all fall for it at some point or another. All right. Well, Constable, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk more about this and to raise some more awareness about it. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Take care.